Hey everybody, welcome to the teaching for Bridgetown Church Online. If you are new, my name is Bethany. Now today we're gonna continue in the Gospel of Matthew, so please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Now last week we jumped headfirst into this chapter, which by the way is a section of scripture that's all about Jesus's journey to give his life away on the cross. And it's a call for his disciples to take up their cross, to die in order that they may experience true life. Now that context is actually really important, especially because this chapter is all about relational life in the kingdom. Last week, you'll remember John, Mark, and Tammy talked about marriage and divorce. And this week, we want to talk about the single life or singleness in the family of God. Matthew chapter 19, we'll pick up at verse 11. Matthew writes this, Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. All right, easy enough. Now, I can imagine that there are at least a few of you at this point who are wondering how this is going to go or really how this is going to apply to you. And I want to really encourage you to stay with me. This text actually has a less to do with relationship statuses and more to do with how we relate to one another in the kingdom. So let's look at it line by line together, and then we'll get to the heart of the text. Verse 11, Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. Okay, so we pick up here right in the middle of a response. Prior to verse 11, the disciples had just asked Jesus if it was better not to marry in light of his rigorous teaching on marriage and divorce. And notice that he doesn't dissuade them or contradict them because frankly, he implies they've drawn the right conclusion. Marriage, as he presents it, is not easy. It's hard. And so in verse 11, he says, it won't be the best path for everyone. And in that we find Jesus commending singleness. Now he goes on to say that not everyone can accept this teaching. The word accept here can be translated to make room for, and the phrase this word means what he's about to say, which takes us to verse 12. For there are eunuchs, he says, who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Now here, Jesus uses the model of the eunuch to describe those in the family of God who do not marry. Scholar Barry Danilak gives us more insight here when he notes that in using the term eunuch, Jesus meant more than someone simply not marrying, but rather someone setting aside the right of marriage and procreation. Jesus is suggesting that there are some who will willingly give up the blessing of both marriage and offspring for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to note the three categories that he mentions here. First, he mentions eunuchs who were born that way. 
Now, the language here is a bit cryptic. Most scholars believe Jesus is referring to those for whom marriage to a member of the opposite sex is not a valid option, and really more likely or most likely, as people in that day did not think about sexual sexual orientation in as fixed of a way as we do today, he is likely referring to what we would call transgender, or more specifically, people who are intersex. Now, intersex people are a very small percentage of the population, both then and now. Though, as we see here, I think beautifully, they are just as important to God as the majority. Now, second, we see that there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. Uh, It was very common in the ancient Mediterranean, and in particular, the Greco-Roman culture, for a master to castrate a male slave so he could serve the women of the house or the harem. Makes sense, right? I'm gonna let you do the math on that one. Third, he says there will be those for, uh, there'll be those who choose to live like eunuchs, meaning to live single and celibate, practicing abstinence and fidelity to Jesus' teaching on relational life outside of marriage. All he says, the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, this uh, doesn't shock us necessarily, but at the time it was a provocative idea in a culture where it was assumed that if you were a good Jewish man or person, you would marry and have a family. And yet here we find Jesus, one of the first teachers, not only in Israel, but in human history by virtue of his own life, holding out the single life as a viable option for human flourishing. Now notice that he uses the word given in our text. This can apply a lot of things, but scholars agree that it predominantly reflects the reality that singleness is a gift, like it's actually a good thing. And this gift sits side by side with, just as we saw a few verses back, the gift of marriage. Both good, both esteemed, and both given dignity and meaning and purpose. Scholar Dale Bruner put it this way. He said, Jesus places the single life next to the married life in co-equal dignity. Both are gifts. Both have God as their source behind and through all experiences. And so both are protected and celebrated by Jesus. Now, a few thoughts or observations before we move on. First, it's really important that we note that the singleness that Jesus is referring to here is again a gift, but also a choice. It won't be for everyone, but it will be for some, and that matters. I often hear single people speak of their singleness as though it is an affliction or a burden or as though it is something that is inconsequential. And while I get the emotional realities uh, behind those sentiments, I often wonder at the root of their lament. Because whether lifelong or temporary, singleness, at least as we see it here, is not something to begrudge or to minimize, but it is actually something that's to be embraced. While not always easy and sometimes and oftentimes marked by deep pain for some, as it is with marriage, it is something to be qualified and quantified as valuable and good, not only to God, but to the family of God and to those around us as well. Second, it's important that we see that the teaching of Jesus here is calling into question the worship and the idolatry of the institution of marriage, both in their day and in ours. It's easy to read a text like this within its Eastern patriarchal lens and marvel at the boldness of Jesus in this moment, but his words sit no less true for us today, particularly for those of us in the West and in the church in the West. 
Now, the point here is that Jesus in this text was restructuring the value framework or the fabric for communal life in the kingdom. In one teaching, he is disrupting the social scale of life and society as a whole. By ascribing lateral value to singleness, he is moving all the hearers to consider relational wholeness through a new means, not simply through marriage, but through and with God himself. And in that, he's calling all disciples to lives of interdependence and mutuality and humility, no matter their relational or marital status. Third, and finally, in this text, we find what scholars call an apocalyptic disruption. Now, I know that sounds fancy, but it really just means that here Jesus is calling the listeners to look forward towards a vision of what will be when the kingdom comes in full. And in that, he's inviting them to expand their vision of relational life and flourishing in the kingdom. Now, for the burning unanswered question of the text, what if I'm single, but I don't want to be? Where do I fit into all this? That is a great question. Exegetically from the text, there is not much to say. But when it comes to what I believe Jesus is getting at in the heart of this text, there's a lot to be said. First and foremost, remember that singleness as we see it, apart from birth or physicality or affliction, is a choice. It is not a mandate. So some will accept this teaching and others, myself included, will want something different. And that's okay. I often talk with people who are scared senseless that God will call them to a life of celibacy or a lifelong singleness. And the truth is, if you're freaking out about the question, there's a good chance you're not called to it. Or you haven't asked the question and stayed around long enough for Jesus to give you his answer. I think every disciple of Jesus should ask the questions of singleness and not fear the outcome, because just like we see here, in the life of our rabbi, singleness is and can be very good. And that's not just a pleasantry, that's the truth. That said, there is usually an in-between time from when you are single to when you get married. And the call here isn't just to wait it out, but to instead fully embrace the fact that your singleness is not a detriment, it's not a concession or a secondary rank, but again, it's a gift that contributes to the good of others and to the kingdom. So what do you do? You live your life for Jesus and you make the most of it. You don't fight it. You enjoy it. You go places. You volunteer at church. You get an education. You sleep in. Sometimes you get your nails done. Sky really is the limit here. Second, we ask, we seek, and we knock. A few chapters back, we find these words of Jesus given to us. So we ask him for what we desire, for what we long for, for what we want. We seek him, his will for our lives, his dreams and his destinies for us. And we knock and we knock again. And sometimes we knock again. We keep asking God for what we want to see him do. Here, there's an open invitation. Now, I know how that can sound, especially to those of you who are in a tender place today. Trust me, I do know. I know it can sound small and menial to hear some of those words, but hear me when I say, no one knows the complexities of your desires and longings better than Jesus himself. He is, in my opinion, the only one I'm willing to entrust all of that to. 
because his invitation for asking is all set under this radical framework and reality that he is the only one who can actually give me what I most long for. Third, and finally, we live holy lives. I'm gonna borrow some language from a previous generation and from the Catholic Church to explain a bit more about what I mean. There is a word that I think is helpful when you're living a life of longing in your singleness. And that word is chastity. Now, I know it sounds so weird to us, but its meaning is fire. Chastity or being chaste is both the temperance and the posture and practice that embraces a framework for holiness in our sexuality, both in thought and in deed. It is a virtue. It's something we hold to, not for, this, not for the sake of accomplishing a task or religious ritual, but because we believe it leads to more life and better sex. Chastity or the practice of abstaining from sex, again, in every way, including porn in our thought lives and lust. Abstaining from this before marriage, though it sounds antiquated, especially in our day and age, and I don't have time to speak to that, that is another sermon is I think at least for the disciple of Jesus, a non-negotiable. It is a commitment we make to build something beautiful, deeper faithfulness to Jesus, and should it happen to a spouse and to our future family. If we believe Jesus's words to be true, even if it's by faith, and we love him enough to entrust our lives to him, then we will have to take him at his word and surrender what we can, even if it feels impossible to do so, because we know there's greater good behind it. He's not offering us a mediocre situation or solution. This isn't a, I have to beat myself up for Jesus for the sake of some goodness. What he's talking about here is good. And in that there is a belief that this obedience is going to add something to our lives, and not take something from it. Often people will ask me how I practice abstinence, especially now in my very early 30s. And honestly, people are the weirdest in these conversations. So if you're that person, man, I just wanna encourage you, stop having those conversations. Now that said, uh, I, I now think I give an answer that best represents why and how I'm abstinence. And it is this, when I said yes to Jesus, I said yes to a covenant with him, like a marriage. And I am chaste and abstinent because of the covenant I'm already in, not because I hope to be in one one day. Got me? This is true for the married person who is fully faithful to their spouse. I practice chastity because I have said yes to the covenant realities of life with Jesus. And that means no sexual unfaithfulness to his ethic or formula for my flourishing. This text, though I know some can read it that way, isn't an indictment for the single person. It isn't coming from someone who hasn't perfectly understood the struggle or the wrestle. The words given to us here are actually a beacon of hope a signpost to us that human flourishing in every relational sense is available, not only to those in marriages, but to everyone. Now that said, it's not without its struggle and ache. And I'm not just talking to the single people. Since our earliest years on this earth, we've all been told a story or a narrative that if we're honest, is very different and even contradicts the one that's being told here by Jesus. Marriage is often best described as happily ever after. It is at least the way the world presents it. 
a, if not the paradigm for the climax of the fulfillment of life. From our favorite books to our favorite movies, we hear and we've heard the resounding messages that marriage or sex and romantic relational intimacy is and will be the fulfillment of all of our heartache and all of our desires. And therein lies our problem or the rub. Because in both marriage and singleness, we will, over time, discover this just isn't true. Culturally speaking, and I do mean in the church, it seems that any ethic that asks anyone to live without sex and or romantic ideal or future is at best unfair and at worst unbearable. So how do we reconcile that with what we just read? The truth is that sentiment points far more to our idolatry of marriage and relationship, both by single and married people alike, than it does to our understanding of true communal life in the kingdom of God. You see, for centuries, much of what people have assumed about singleness is that it is in fact the absence of good and meaningful things, things like family and sex and intimacy, that it is even, though most would never say it, the epitome and the scarlet letter of a lonely life. And while we wanna push against that idea, especially those of us in the church, myself included, it is the narrative that many of us in the family carry, whether we know it consciously or not. And it is the result of a misplaced truth. This way of thinking has led to a lot of really crazy and distorted and injurious lies, emphasizing half-truths about individuals and catalyzing what I believe to be a destructive theology that says God is not as good as he says he is and that there is an expressed value system different from the one he inaugurated himself. Hear me when I say this narrative that's out there is anti-gospel and it has wrongfully set us at odds with each other. Filling minds, I think, and hearts with comparison, not compassion. All throughout the New Testament scriptures, we find the strongest metaphor for the community of the disciples of Jesus is the family of God or the body of Christ, which implies that we aren't free to only care about one part or just our part. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 that for just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. We are a body, a family, and we belong to each other. I need to know what your life is like as a Jesus person who is married. And you need to know what it's like for me as a single person. Not because we need to stay up to date with the latest gossip or even help each other through the lens of superiority, but because we need to more fully understand the presence of God in each other's lives. I have a stake in your marriages and you in my singleness. John, Mark and Tammy, they know the ups and downs of my single life the very real challenges, practically and emotionally speaking, that I face. And I know the challenges and joys of their marriage because it matters to all of us. Their marriage affects me and my singleness affects them. This text, while speaking directly to those in the family who are single, is for everyone, married and single alike. 
because it's here that we find Jesus placing value on both marriage and singleness. Not so everyone can feel good about themselves, but so that we would instead see and be free to embrace the ethic that says relationship with God is our first sufficiency, all of us. And then from that place, be free to come under Jesus and act like and live like a family, not separated and insulated by statuses, but integrated, known and loved for who we are and where we are. Part of embracing Jesus's teaching here will mean letting go of and maybe even repenting of an old way of thinking that elevates relational status over and against the theological reality that we can't find satisfaction for our souls in anything but in Jesus alone. The call here is to embrace a more robust and integrated picture of what life in the kingdom is meant to be. Now, I want you to look back with me at our passage. We're going to look at verse 13 together. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Now, Matthew ends this section of scripture with a story about children, which really makes sense if you think of it in light of what Jesus has just finished talking about, marriage, singleness, and now children. And in verse 13, we see the people begin to bring their children to Jesus, which by the way, this was common practice of the day. Parents often brought their children to be blessed by a holy man. And then we see the disciples wrongly rebuke them and try to keep the children from him, assuming that they did not have claim to Jesus's attention. But in fact, we read, it was quite the opposite. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven belonged to them. And in an act of what some scholars think is a commissioning or a blessing, he lays his hands on them and he sends them out. Now, this story is a real story about Jesus's life and his ministry and his love and his care for the children. But many scholars have also speculated that it could be an intentional literary image that reiterates and reflects what Jesus has been after here in this teaching. We see that there will be people for whom most of us would assume have no right to the kingdom, whether it be through our bias or our prejudice or assumption, people that are different from us in relational status or otherwise. And we see that they are often the exact ones Jesus wants to use to make his kingdom known. We also see what many believe to be a provocative statement of Jesus about the family of God, that one does not have to grow a family biologically, and that in fact, the kingdom of heaven doesn't only grow by biological ascription, but also through witness and conversion and discipleship. Finally, we see our call as the family of God, single or married, to be like the children, but also to be faithful to live well in the kingdom so that no one would be hindered in coming to Jesus because of us. This discourse calls us to challenge the norms, to push against what culture says we should be or what we should expect or what we should feel 
and lean into the greater reality of the kingdom of God, trusting that the deaths we die along the way will lead to a greater and more true life. I believe the words of Jesus here are compelling because I believe they are telling a better story than the one culture has allowed us to believe. And I'm not saying that because I'm a pastor. I'm saying that because I am in touch with the realities of what's been laid out here for us today in this passage. I am single and it has been hard, not just because I have lonely weeks or years, but because the ache and the isolation of it is multifaceted and complex. I'm not ignorant of the prejudice or luxury of my situation. I am not unaware of the assumptions people make about me or the tidal waves of insecurity and accusations that the enemy throws at me on a daily basis. And if I had my guess, neither are you. But I am unwilling to let that deter me from the greater gifts of the kingdom, married or single. And wherever you find yourself today, I believe you can find yourself in the words of Jesus offered to us here. And that's the point. 